Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom, and this is my podcast. Join me as I delve into the world of games and gaming, and especially old school RPGs. Together, let's voyage into the astral realm and check out my Phantom Call. In this episode, I have calls from Joe of the Hindsightless Podcast, Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, and Daniel of the Bandits Keep podcast and YouTube channel and blog. I also have a battle report from the Tales of the Dragon Slayer's World, uh, Nomads versus Bandits. But first, I want to spend a few minutes talking about Halberds and Helmets. What is Halberds and Helmets? Well, I first got to know it as a podcast by a gentleman named Alex Schroeder. In fact, it appears in my podcaster feed as Alex Schroeder, Halberds and Helmets, and where he talked about various topics relating to old school RPG, old school RPGs. Uh, the latest one, which came out, he's talking. He's been doing kind of a series, monsters, sip, colon, and then something. Uh, he did elephants for one. This time he does elves. And he talks about elves as what would immortal creatures actually be like? And it's a pretty interesting discussion. Uh, he he podcasts infrequently. It's just here and there. They're very short. It's very interesting. He's got an interesting back, back catalog. Uh, Halberds and Helmets is also his his blog slash wiki. Yes, he is, his blog is a wiki that other people apparently can edit. I haven't tried to edit i've actually tried to edit any wiki i haven't tried to edit his wiki but he does give a warning kind of on on one of the pages it says uh you know beware what you read somebody may have changed something and i haven't had an opportunity to fix it if it's wrong but i found that an interesting concept and he blogs on a lot of topics but he also talks about against rpgs because howards and helmets is also his rpg his old school rpg his take on old school rpgs so it's, it's a very interesting podcast. It's a very interesting blog. He's a very interesting person. And there will be uh, there will be links in the show notes to his, to his general blog and also specifically to the section of his blog that directs you to his podcast. But the, uh, the address, if you just want to hear it, is Alex Schroeder. That's S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R dot C-H alexschroeder.ch so that so you can check that out so uh that being said uh let's get to the calls and all these guys podcasts will also be linked in the show notes when you just talk about practice we sitting here i supposed to be the franchise player and we in here talking about practice i mean listen we talking about practice not a game not a game not a game we talking about practice <laughs> that was nba all world player alan iverson um and i thought that quote was fairly germane to what we're talking about what's up phantom uh awesome episode first off well second off after iverson i want to say that i really liked your update and story about tales of the dragon slayers i think that's what it's called i, I it's great it's super fun it's interesting uh, I hope you keep it up, man. It's fantastic. 
Uh, but yeah, so let's get back to the idea of training and adventuring. What I was trying to say is that I think the act of going out every day, using your swords, adventuring, camping, what you do when you're after you camp, you know, maybe you do some sparring with your comrades while you're out there, killing time after you camp before everyone beds down. I just think that that would have more of a more of an effect of getting somebody better at their task than setting aside two weeks of just doing of just doing right like the NBA play to use to stick with the professional sports analogy uh, practice is important but it's the everyday practice it's not you get better during the season more so than you get better during the off season when you're not fully engaged in your activity. So that, that's sort of what I mean. You know, the off season for professional sports is like the whole idea of training. And I don't think the players level up during the off season as much as they do during the regular season. Cause it's that everyday repetitive you're, you're practicing your craft. You're working on your craft every single day while you're out there living your craft. Yeah, I don't know, man. That's, I mean, I think we're kind of talking about the same thing, <laughs> really. Um, but, yeah, so there's that. And then as far as the XP for gold and milestones and everything, I already made a call in to Taylor about that. Uh, but one thing I forgot to mention, in, in Taylor's response to you, where Taylor's going through and talking about all the different things you could do with using gold for XP. He neglected to mention that all of those require getting gold for XP. You, you're not going to level up if you're not doing, if you decline payment, right? If you're playing a character who isn't interested in getting gold at all, you're not going to level up at all. If you're just using XP for gold. Uh, but then that goes back to the whole thing where, you know, the XP reward system is set up to facilitate and encourage a certain style of play. But, yeah, so, I mean, you're not wrong when you say it's, it, anytime you just have one source of XP, it's limiting, right? It's a little railroady because this is how you get XP. You have to get gold or hit certain milestones or kill these monsters. Anyway, man. <laughs> awesome episode again take it easy peace out <laughs> iverson that's that's one of the all-time great press conference quotes right that's that's one of the ones that if people heard it if people saw it people heard it they remember it it's just something you remember forever and uh you know he was taken to task a lot for that because i think in part because a lot of other players like michael jordan were they were very big on practice and they were very big on getting better in the off season, which is something I think, yes, you do get better with practice and you do get better and you're supposed to get better as a team as the season goes on through your practice. But a lot of players in a lot of sports go to the off season to improve their overall skills. Classic example, staying with basketball, the Pete Newell big man camp. Big men like Patrick Ewing and Hakeem Olajuwon and Shaquille O'Neal, 
they went to that they went to be trained by Pete Newell at his big man camp to learn better about the footwork to to play their position. And they did that during the offseason because you could get the individual reps for the individual improvement. And I think a lot of this stems from, you know, that's that one-on-one type of training, which is what we're talking about in in Dungeons and Dragons, in other old school RPGs that have sort of a training requirement behind them. And I think, and of course, a lot of that stems from the idea of the, of the, the master apprentice idea we have from medieval times and ancient times where someone that is good at, as a, at a craft, they pass it on to someone else who at first assists them and learns, and it may be a family member, it may be someone from outside their family that they assist, that they assist in those ideas, and then they take take on the the lower skill level things that they, of that particular job or 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 skill set, and then eventually they become a master themselves, and then they move on, and that's things like blacksmiths and artists and glassmaking and watchmaking when they started making mechanical watches. And of course that went over into combat. And so we have every reason to believe that it would, it would mesh into adventuring skills in a world where adventuring is a thing. But yes, absolutely. Training with your companions after part of the adventure or you know, before you go to bed at night or before you take up watch and things like that can also be a way to improve. So it all, you know, it all depends on your game, but I think, I think the off season here, the air quotes version of training, I think there is some value there, more value than I think you believe it has from, from your call in. And as far as gold for XP, uh, I'm going to talk about more about that in a minute because Jason has something to say about that. Hey, Pink Phantom, Jason here, just calling off episode 48. As far as the XP Superhighway goes, I don't think you're wrong about the sandbox, and you could definitely influence intentionally or unintentionally what players do by how XP is available. And I think the key to that is going to be a solid session zero before the game starts and having XP plotted out for different things. So if there's XP available for exploration, an XP for monster killing, an XP for recovering gold, an XP for doing career goals, you know, creating new spells, uh, things like that, then if you have XP available for a wide enough variety of things, I don't think you're going to hinder that sandbox play because they'll be able to do that. But if you... And and maybe that, so that's where something like Burning Wheel comes more in, where you got the character goals and you get, you know, and you kind of take that those characters' goals and motivations into that leveling up. So, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I I do think if you stick to just buy the book AD and D, I don't think it totally limits sandbox play, but it definitely encourages some activities over other activities. Great show. Keep up the great work. Talk to you soon. 
and and really the the mindset I was approaching the thing that that really that really got the question churning in my mind when I called into to Taylor's podcast, the Whispering GM, the first time was the idea of how does this affect sandbox play? Because the 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 basic concept of sandbox play, anytime you hear it described in and this is a, a very old school way of doing things, you know, or at least the, the podcasts and the blogs that I've read and listened to, is the idea that it gives the idea of the sandbox is that the the players are driving the direction the campaign goes. And, you know, also in those same circles, those same kind of blogs and podcasts and YouTube channels, the idea is the GM shouldn't try to influence that. They shouldn't have a set plot. They should have adventure hooks and have some adventures prepared that if they decide players decide to take that direction, they can, but they should be responding to what the players are looking to do for the campaign. And that's why things like, you know, the GM not quote unquote writing a book and making the players play through that, not having the dungeons where every room has an entrance and an exit. So you don't have a lot of choices about where you're going, that the dungeon needs to have lots of different ways to connect. And so that there are different ways to get around different traps or, or obstacles or creatures or what have you that when you encounter creatures that, it shouldn't always be combat. There should be negotiation. There should be attempts, ability to trick or to to just simply bypass to get around them. And and where where limitations are made, it's made by the roll of the dice. It's made by random encounter tables. And it's made by reaction tables. But the GM should should place should should create a world and that a living world, a world that moves, where there can be consequences if players don't take a certain plot hook or whatever, but not because it's aimed at the players and making the players do something. And I've never heard the idea of how you get XP in that context, of how you get XP could that be used to advertently or inadvertently direct the players. And it just it just all came together in my mind when Taylor was talking about gold for XP and using gold for XP. And to me, it kind of falls into that influence category. It's right up there. It's not maybe right up there with the quantum ogre where you're always going to have to fight the ogre or, or fudging dice rolls to, to give an outcome when it looks like it might not favor the the... PCs, but you want them to succeed, or it will favor the PCs, and you want them to kind of have a setback so that they go in another direction. It doesn't rise to that level, but it is something that can influence the campaign, and it's something that it, you know, it's going to depend on the game system, the style of game, what the players want out of the game, and some of that is covered in Session Zero, and some of it is simply, I think, being very flexible and not saying we're just going to do it the one way. And, and I'm not saying gold for XP is a negative. I think I've talked about it in that context, gold for XP, because that's how the discussion started, but it can be gold. It can be XP for anything. It can be XP for, it can be, it might not even be XP. It might be 
how do your how do the player characters get better? Uh, do they get better by exercising their skills? Like what Joe was just talking about, you get better doing the things that you do. If if that's the way you're going to run it, then is there more incentive for players to simply do a handful of things and concentrate on those, or is there inf- incentive to branch out and learn how to do new things? Does it encourage or discourage one way or the other? Uh, do you get better simply by, you know, we've had six sessions, you get better. I know on uh, Tale of the Manticore, of course, obviously, that's a podcast that's it's an actual play podcast, but it is a podcast, and so there have to be some some changes made to how you're doing things because you're doing it as a show. Uh, he does progression by so many episodes. A character appears in so many episodes, they advance a level. And that makes sense for a podcast because the podcast progresses by episodes. So it makes sense that the, that the characters would progress that way. But are you going to do that in terms of session? And if that if you do that, what if somebody, because life happens, misses several sessions, now their character falls behind? And in some games, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the characters aren't aren't matched level to level because some game systems, some character classes or some character types, they will, they will get stronger faster or they will get stronger slower. You know, their second level may have a power level that gives them, that is equivalent to third or fourth level of a different character class. The older versions of D&D are famous for the different character classes progress differently. It's not, you get this many XP, your second level, if you get that many XP, your second level is a thief, but you may not be second level as a magic user. So, you know, a lot goes into it, and I'm, I think I'm starting to talk in circles at this point. But I do think it's interesting to discuss, because I've never really heard it discussed other than gold for XP is the best way for an old school sandbox campaign. That's the only way I've really ever heard XP discussed, so I haven't heard as much discussed now that they're in some other types of 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 rpgs some of the indie scene or some of the more modern games there may be more discussion about it but i just haven't heard it because i listen to more of the the old school style read the old school style blogs but i just thought it was interesting idea that it's kind of an established notion among a lot of old school players that sandbox play and gold for xp that's the best way and it, it minimizes DM influence. And I'm I'm not sure it does. I'm not sure it does. But thank you both for, for the comments and for calling in. And we've got one more call from Daniel that's going to cover pretty much everything we covered up to now and a little more. So I'm going to let Daniel have it. Hey, Pink Fandom. Daniel from Bandits Keep calling in about the last episode. Well, not the last episode, your latest episode. Hopefully it's not your last episode. Uh, lots of great stuff there. Uh, to Joe's call, I think I agree with you 100%. I think it, this is in all fields. I mean, the, the, obviously, the professional athletes is a great example, but, you know, military, right? They, they do maneuvers and train so that they get better and learn new things for the, when they go out in the field. They don't, you don't ever stop learning and training. Teachers go back to school to get different degrees. I'm a photographer, right? I, I don't just do my job. I do side projects and practice things and learn new techniques when I'm not working for exactly the reason you said. You don't want to 
be trying something for the first time with a client who's paying you, right? So yeah, I totally get that. That being said, I mean, it really depends on if you want to, if you want to mechanize it or not. It just comes down to your system and your style of play, right? I do think that some people don't love the training when they run. What I used to say whenever my 5e campaign versus my OSR campaign is one of them is like a movie and the other one's like a, a series, you know, TV series. Because, right, they're, they're just five, my 5e campaign was nonstop. You're just going, going, going. And if you're running something like that, then yes, training between levels doesn't really work because, oh, I put a timer on everything of, you know, three weeks before the world ends. Well, you know, you're not going to be able to stop and train or the world's going to end. So that's all just something you have to figure out into your game system. But I think it makes sense whether or not you use it or not, obviously, comes down to your style of play. On to point two, which was XP. Oh, yeah. So, yes, I, I listened to Taylor's uh, response, which I thought was good, and your call-in and, and this one. You know, I think that what you're saying is true, that you definitely influence. In fact, I think this is a something people say in the OSR community is that XP for gold influences and, and kind of directs play. It does do that. It makes you know the gold is in the dungeon or wherever it is. Go get it. What it doesn't do is force you to do it a certain way, right? So you could steal the gold, you could kill the monsters, you could, I don't know, figure out, hire somebody else to kill the monsters and then steal the gold. I mean, there's all different ways to get the gold, right? And because of that, you have the options. That's why people tend to like it. That being said, if you want to do, let's let's say, a Borderlands exploration thing, then you could just make something of value besides gold and just swap it for that, right? If you want to say, well, when you explore, you could just make it vague and be like X number of hexes, which is a little meta for me. What you might do instead is say, every time you camp, there's a chance you're going to find these certain, this mineral that grows on the surface or flowers that you can collect or herbs or whatever. And you could make those things valuable. And, and again, that could be your XP, XP for for plants, you know, however you want to do it, you know, ultimately the gold value of them. So I think that's easy enough to do. When I ran my Hepaboria campaign, this is going to tie into both things. I did the XP per session as well as XP for gold and monsters. And the reason why I did that was because I found the way I wanted to run the campaign, which was very episodic, is I didn't want to run like a bunch of time in between the modules I was running. So I needed them to basically level up at the rate of the modules, almost Adventure Path style, right? So what I did was I just made sure that, okay, this is going to take a certain number of sessions. I'm just going to add on a you know XP per session that should get them where they're going if they get enough gold. I mean, it wasn't 100%, but it worked pretty well. So I've done that. For that, for training, because that's a system where they did use training, what I did for the training was this. If you got enough experience points to level up and you were mid-adventure, like you didn't want to stop, you got the hit points for the, uh, for the new level. You even got the spell slots for the new level. What you didn't get were things like new spells because you would have had to take time to train to learn those, right? You didn't get new weapon proficiencies. So you didn't get some of those added skills that were just something you didn't have before. Things that you already had that made sense that would go up, like your fighting ability, just went up. You know, which which made it a little better for the fighting classes, honestly, because they basically got mostly everything on level up, where the spellcasters did not. So, yeah. So, wrapping up this long message, <laughs> as to your your podcast and the actual play, I really love the format. I love that you're doing the the moving of the gold and all that stuff as a story. It's one of the things, you know, when I jumped into my actual play, I'm really treating it more like a board game, and I'm not doing that. And I find the commenters and just discussing with people, they're asking the questions that you're basically answering. Like, what happens to the gold when they get back there? What, what's it like back at the town? What's going on here? And I'm not really covering that in my podcast. So I think that you doing that is just something that people will be interested in because, as I said, 
they ask me that all the time in my in my world. So I'm really enjoying it. I want to see where this goes. I think I missed an episode because uh, so I didn't in, uh, get the. Uh, the I, I I'm gonna have to go back and listen to it because I didn't know if I got the one. I got, I heard the, the nomads. I heard the, the brigands. I didn't realize they had had conflict. Or maybe you're saying that hasn't happened yet. I'll go back and look. In any case. I, I love the intrigue. I love the moving of the treasure. I like how you're doing it. And honestly, if you probably rolled all that out and took time, then you'd be doing, you know, an additional 30 to 40 minutes on your podcast to tell the same story. And I don't know that would have been any more interesting. So yeah, I like how you're doing it. In summary, I can't wait to hear about the, the mass combat and how you ran that in AD&D and how you figured out your numbers and such. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you, Daniel, for the kind words. Uh, no, you didn't miss an episode. Uh, the battle is, the battle report is next. It's the it's the very next thing after your call. Uh, it's always interesting to hear uh, you describe how you how you are dealing with things like handing out XP, making sure characters are progressing, and and things of that nature in a campaign. Because, and I always find that interesting about your your YouTube videos and your and your podcast because. It's always interesting to hear how that's done by folks and and to see the different ways that you can adjudicate that to make sure that the players are in a place where they can they can feel good about what they're doing because you know that's at the, at the end of the day that's what it's about whether you're about progressing through a series of modules or exploring a, a, a world or you know performing a heist or going after rare items for the local magic user or to or to find a cure for a disease that's debilitating the kingdom however whatever it is that their goals are and and are they are they progressing are they do they feel like they're accomplishing something because if you don't feel like you're accomplishing something then you're 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 not going to be having fun and and it's going to make it more likely that the campaign and the sessions are going to come to an end because people just like, I, I don't know what I'm doing even. But it's always good to hear hear a good perspective. I always like your perspective. You always bring a, a real thoughtful perspective, a real real thoughtful ideas to to the to the table. You always talk. You always express very well what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I I appreciate that. And I especially appreciate you calling into my show. And giving your insights to that, you, I love that your message was, it's a long message. Well, it was, it was a worthwhile message. You covered a lot of topics and you related a lot of them together. And, uh, you know, that's part of what makes what we're doing, what we've been doing since Anchor was a thing, calling into shows and, and talking these things through. That was one of the things that I really liked about this community was the way people interacted and, and ideas kind of built off each other. And sometimes they worked they they came together. They dovetail nicely, and other times there were different opinions. And I think we've heard that on the show today. And I certainly appreciate you calling Daniel, and I appreciate calling calls come that came in from you, Jason, and from you, Joe. Uh, it's always great to hear from y'all, and uh, it makes this podcast better. I think one hundred percent. And with that said, now we're going to go to the Tales of the Dragon Slayer's world, and talk about mass combat. In the world of the Dragon Slayers, the brigands, while sending off for ransom for their last two captives that they have, 
they had passed on the way into town the nomad camp. Desperate for treasure to be able to continue feeding their men and keeping them together, the brigand leader decided that they would attack the nomads. Uh, the nomads, I decided, were when they came up into the hills outside the fort, decided to look for, they needed to look for something with a pasture land and a lake where they could water and feed their herds while they were waiting to hear if they would be lit back into the kingdom. To figure out the exact terrain, I went to some, a product I purchased some time ago called Pocket Lands Kingdom. It's a series of cards with lots of different types of terrain. It's from uh, pocketlands.com. A person by the name of Alexi Aparin is how he's listed on uh, Drive-Thru RPG. And you can get a digital product, or I also got a deck of cards. And there's they have actually, he has actually several different decks in the Pocket Lands series. And so I found a card, an appropriate card, with some pasture land around a lake area. This particular card, if you happen to have a copy of it, is card number three. It has a, a lake up in the corner with a river that kind of meanders down and then across almost the middle and then continues down diagonally to the lower bottom left corner. In the bottom right corner are some woods. And along the top are some hills. And going basically straight up the middle of the map is a road which crosses over the river on a bridge. And as soon as it crosses over, it splits, continuing to go up in one direction and then off to the left in the other. And I didn't use the this entire card. I kind of zoomed in on the part of it with the lake and the the lands around the river and just to the to the upper side of the river the brigands were going to have the advantage of being able to kind of choose the battle on their own of their own timing because they knew there was going to be a battle and the nomads would have to see anyone coming up the road as a potential threat but not as an absolute threat until they they acted in some sort of offensive manner the nomad forces consisted of lancers and bowmen all mounted they also had, were equipped with some sort of swords, according to the monster manual. Uh, for, for swords, I rolled, I roll randomly to see what type of, type of sword they get. I do the same thing with pole arms, and they rolled kopesh swords, which are a sickle type of sword, which I thought was kind of apt, at least from a, I guess a stereotypical type thing you see in the movies with with horse horse based nomads. You see the sickle type sword. So I thought that was pretty appropriate. Uh, the bandits, well, I'll get to them in a moment. Uh, they also had uh, some, both sides had some upper level characters, mainly fighters, and but also a mixture of clerics and magic users for both sides. Two clerics on each side, uh, one magic user for the brigands, two magic users of slightly lower level for the nomads. The nomad forces, because of the terrain, and because they had to be aware of potential enemies coming from either, either end of the road, were dispersed. The main force was to the right side of the battlefield, and that's where the overall leader was located and where the bulk of their archers were. And then on the other side of the river across the bridge, they had a couple of heavy lan uh, 
medium lance units and some archers with one of the magic users with the archers and with the uh, lieutenant of the of the group with one of the heavy one of the medium lance units and then between the road and the river on the left hand side they had a small group a couple of groups of light lancers and some bowmen uh, the bandits consisted mainly of of foot troops they had a mixture of a few spears a few pole arms and mainly swords uh, they had falchion swords and the they had spears and uh, I rolled for pole arm and they had bilgis arms I'm not sure that's exactly how you say that word uh, it's spelled G U I S A R M E. And the word bill is just like bill. Uh, it's a long pole arm. It has a hooked curved blade on the end of it and a, and also a spike on the end is most of the descriptions I've found for it. So it's a really long weapon. Uh, it's listed in the player's handbook as being up to eight feet plus. Uh, spears are listed to up to 13 feet plus. And at the time I rolled them up and I rolled these up these units up separately with no idea they were going to fight each other until I saw how the timing worked out on the on the random encounters tables rolls and came up with the idea that I'd make the spears maybe into that 13 plus range the bills into that eight foot plus range and have for the handful of bills and spears would would pair up with some swords to have essentially 15 man units three ranks deep with the swords on the front the bill gets arms on the second level and the spears on the third level, and they would all be able to hit whatever was in front of them because of the length of the weapons in the back. Uh, the remaining force of bandits was almost all swords. Well, it was also it was mostly swords, with a handful of them, about twenty of them mounted. Uh, one group led by the lieutenant of the group of just the regular mounted horsemen with lances. No, they had they just had swords. They didn't have lances, and the other group comprising mostly of the the second level bodyguards of the the leader and the leader, and they also had uh, about a dozen short bows and a couple of dozen cro- light crossbows, and they had a couple of clerics and and the and the high, and a magic user of the higher level than what the nomads had. And so what I decided their strategy would be, because part of the rolling up the group in the monster manual was when you have these these leveled characters, there's an opportunity, there's a chance for magic items for all of them. And one of the magic items they rolled up was Dust of Disappearance. And if you're not familiar with Dust of Disappearance, especially the first edition version, uh, it's a type of dust. It, it makes you invisible. I mean, you know, it does what it says on the tin. But unlike the invisibility spells, uh, attacking does not break the invisibility. It just, it will last from two to 12 turns. And so I decided they would use that to their advantage and they would use their, their, their ability to get in kind of a, almost a first strike to their advantage. So what they did was they had the, all but one of the clerics from their spellcasters and their bowmen get into the woods, cover themselves with the dust and wait kind of at the edge of the woods for the attack to begin. Uh, the mage had levitate, and so levitated up, so he would be able to see 
when the army was passing by, and when they got to the right point, he would be able to signal them to begin the attack. The, the other cleric was sort of in the middle of the marching column. They had the, the, the three, three, line, three rank units of swords, spears, bills, and spears toward the front. They did have one group of swordsmen that they did also cover with Dusted Disappearance that went ahead of the main group to get across the bridge and kind of be able to, to sow confusion there if the units on that side tried to move, move towards intercepting the army and interfering and just to be able to, to general, you know, invisible swordsmen. But they didn't make the entire army invisible because it would be almost impossible to, to manage that large group of invisible people. So the cleric was in the center of the main group, and when that center part got to the edge of the woods, the mage would the magic user would signal that everything was ready. The cleric cast bless, which was going to be affect everyone except for the swordsman on the other side of the river. For I believe it was I believe it was five five rounds so that that, that lasts to give them that extra plus one to hit. And then they moved in to attack. There was no surprise for either side because the nomads, of course, were wary of anyone traveling up and down the road, and the brigands knew that they were going to to start a battle. But the brigands did win the initial. <laughs> they won the initial uh, initiative. That's hard to get out. They they won the first initiative. Uh, they had the initial charge and the volley of arrows inflicted a lot of casualties early on the nomads. Uh, the All the units essentially attacked. One of the stacked units of swords, bills, and spears moved to block the bridge to keep the other units from moving across. And one, one of those units moved to the left-hand side, and then also some swordsmen and some horsemen moved to that side and everyone else moved towards the right where the main force of the nomads was. So the initial charge, and you get bonuses for charging, plus the volley of arrows inflicted a great deal of casualties on the nomads. Uh, in particular, the bowmen stationed beside the road suffered from the brigands. Uh, the lieutenant leading the horsemen ended up attacking horse archers that weren't very well equipped to deal with them. And a nomad group of Lancers charged onto the bridge, but they were stopped by the waiting stacked unit at the other end. Uh, the nomad archers proved surprisingly effective against the brigand bow users, despite both cover and invisibility. I did roll to see what kind of cover they would get. They got they got some reasonable cover. They got an extra bonus of two to their armor class, and then a, a bonus of minus uh, minus four to anyone attacking against them because they were invisible. But you know when you're throwing a lot of a lot of dice around, you, you eventually get some hits. Uh, the lancers lashed out at the brigands coming off the road between the river and the woods. Uh, the brigand mage lashed out with a lightning bolt in the second round, destroying several units outright and killing all all of the archers in the nomad chief's unit and injuring him. Uh, the leader of the nomad unit that had charged across the bridge, had to withdraw after his unit was destroyed. And, but a second unit set to charge, and as they were doing so, the invisible swordsmen, 
beside them were able to get a free attack in, but they were able to charge across the bridge and engage that stacked unit and inflict some damages there. Uh, the brigand leader joined the fray as more nomad units moved to engage the forces in the middle of the battlefield. Uh, the horse archers between the road and the river on the left-hand side would eventually break away from the horses, giving them some free shots, but moving south, hoping to lure them with them. Uh, the leader and the lieutenant of the brigands was not, were not very bright. I rolled against the lieutenant's intelligence to see if he would follow them off the battlefield or stay on the battlefield. He chose to follow them, and every turn thereafter, I essentially treated him like he had an additional plus two to his intelligence, realizing that his medium horses were not going to catch those light horses. But it took several turns for him to realize that and turn around to come back to the battle. Uh, the nomad, the brigand leader, had held back his group of horsemen initially, and then when he saw how the battle was developing in the center to right-hand side, he tried to engage in a flanking attack, but more lancers came into him. It became a real uh, morass of units attacking against each other in that middle section of the battlefield. One of the nomad mages died in that lightning bolt, but the other one who was across the river, uh, when he saw some of the things that were going on, he cast Detect Invisibility. He spotted the swordsmen that were on his side of the river and, detect, and directed a, a uh, lance unit to attack them. And then he spotted the mage hovering over the edge of the woods and directed the, the archer with him to shoot their bows at him. But that mage had cast, had cast protection from normal missiles, so they didn't hit him. But that mage did have a wand of magic missiles and hit him a couple times with those. But the next round the invisible mage for the brigands would cast shield, which, of course, uh, blocks all magic missiles, that, at least as long as you're in front of them. Meanwhile, a group of lancers charged into the woods to try to engage with the invisible crossbowmen, and they had some success because it's a large group and you know they just were able to find some targets in there. Uh, one of the brigands' clerics would move to the middle of the battlefield and begin using whole person spells. Uh, the clerics on both sides would start using whole person spells with some pretty good effects. Uh, most of the leveled characters were able to kind of shake it off. There were a couple of the leveled characters that did get caught in the holds. And of course, those troops would be dispatched by the other side immediately on the next turn because they were, they were helpless. Uh, the duel of arrow vo volleys would consider back and forth between the horse archers and the invisible archers in the woods, at least the ones that weren't engaged on, on one end of their line. Uh, the brigands on the bridge were eventually surrounded and surrendered. They only had their leaders left at that point. And the invisible swordsmen were also eventually finished off by the lancers on that side. So the nomads were gradually able to begin filtering more reinforcements onto the battlefield. Other than a couple to, to guard those prisoners. And those nomads joined the battle against the bandit leader and the stacked unit in the middle of the battlefield, as well as a couple of sword units that were on that side. Uh, the nomad leader was very effective against one of the sword units. Uh, he had some magic armor. Most of the high-level fighters had magic armor. A lot of the nomads had magic armor. There were the nomad, 
I'm sorry, a lot of the brigands had magic armor. The brigands rolled a lot more magic armor and weapons than the nomads did, but it didn't end up telling a, a lot, a big difference between the two. It just, it made them hard to hit. The, the leveled characters, particularly those that were fighters and clerics, they were wearing at least plate mail or they were wearing some kind of magic armor, and they were very difficult for people to hit. Just as the lancers in the woods were getting the best of the crossbowmen, uh, the, the one invisible cleric moved over and cast Animate Dead and raised some zombies to get essentially get some of the crossbowmen back into the action. And so that had a powerful effect. Eventually, the it was down to just the leader of that unit, and a lot of units on both sides were reduced to just their leaders eventually. The leader of those lancers eventually sensed he wasn't doing any any good against the crossbowman leader and the cleric he was engaged with. And since he was mounted, he moved out of there to another part of the battlefield where he could be more effective. About this time, the leader of the nomads finished off the swordsman he was facing. A couple more, another unit of horsemen also got dispatched by the nomads and they began moving toward the middle of the battlefield where the leader of the bandits and his guards were doing quite well while the stack unit had kind of been reduced again to just its leaders. So the invisible units started kind of moving in that direction so that they could engage to try to, to turn that tide of battle. Uh, the, the, guard, the, the lancers that were guarding the prisoners saw this happening, so they, they dispatched the prisoners to also join the battle. And it became kind of a big big cluster sort of in the middle of the battlefield with a couple small fights off between the road and the river on the left-hand side of the battlefield. But the nomads gradually seemed to be gaining the upper hand. The nomad magic user with his detect invisible going was able to kind of spot the invisible units as they moved in and direct units to kind of intercept them or to get behind them. Uh, one of the, the the invisible one of the one of the clerics tried to get over to kind of heal the bandit leader after he took a couple hits from the magic missile wand, and but the magic user was able to direct the archers with him to kind of finish that cleric off. And as it got to be more and more of a sort of a one one main section of battle. They even began firing kind of into the melee, risking hitting their own folks to try to take out the guards and the and the brigand leader. Although for the most part, the the the, the bow fire was not affecting the brigand leader simply because the weapon versus armor table just gave them a terrible negative, so they weren't able to do anything. But the magic missiles were used to to great effect. The the bandit mage, after casting that lightning bolt, really did not have much of an effect on the battle because that was kind of the last of his really good offensive spells. And it seemed as if things were starting to 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 move momentum-wise the nomad's way. And then the medium horse under the brigand's lieutenant returned to the battlefield. So at that point, any nomad units that were free had to move into position to intercept them. So you begin developing another battle on the road. 
but that did keep him from reinforcing the other units that were already engaged on the battlefield. The leadership units and the leveled units that were essentially all that the brigands had left at this point, they started failing morale checks. Uh, the, some of the invisible, a couple of the invisible uh, units actually tried to surrender, but because they were invisible, they were really just making themselves known and got cut down. Uh, the cleric did manage to escape, although the nomad mage managed to aim with a couple of magic missiles as he was leaving the battlefield. Uh, initially, both the leader and the lieutenant kept going with their morale. They kept their morale going. But as more units around them fell, they failed their morale as well. Uh, the bandit, the brigand leader tried to escape, but, but being on foot by this point, his horse had been cut down from under him, was caught and surrounded and ex eventually beaten into submission. He, he never fell morale again. He just kept fighting, which went along with the personality that he had been rolled. He had been rolled with kind of a, a very, fo very, uh, a very fanatical, a very obsessive personality. So that it made sense that he would go down fighting. Uh, the lieutenant, once the horsemen around him had attempted, had failed morale, attempted to flee and been cut down, he then felt his morale check, uh, and just in time because he was reduced to one hit point when he sur finally surrendered. And eventually... The leader, the leader of the brigands was overcome, mainly due to the effects of the magic missile. But before he was brought down, he killed the lieutenant and got one good lick of the nomads and got one good lick in on the leader who was already injured from the lightning bolt, leaving him with just a handful of hit points. And after that, it was essentially a matter the the magic user for the nomads took his horse into the woods and started circling around the levitating magic user of the, the brigands so that he could him in the back with magic missiles, eventually bringing him down. Uh, the whole combat took about 15 rounds, not including the time it took for the magic user to fin the, the nomad magic user to finish off the man, the brigand magic user. So it was it was a pretty long combat. I used a D and D. Yes, I know that seems a little ridiculous, and in retrospect, it probably was because the nomads started off with 140 people, including the leveled units, and the brigands started off with 145. Uh, I managed to I broke them up into units, each one with with a leader, usually a fighter, and I I used. Uh, Excel to lay out some some cards with showing their weapons, their armor, uh, what they what they hit, uh, the weapon versus armor for their particular weapons, things like if they had any special abilities like, you know, spears being able to inflict damage if they're set to receive a charge, or lances inflicting double damage if they're used in a charge, things of that nature, and the different various spells that the different casters had and some of the magic items i did i did miss one of the magic items that the that the nomads had the lieutenant was carrying a uh what was it called it was called a, the silver horn of valhalla which would have summoned some 
essentially spirit warriors to fight for him. Uh, the nomads ended up winning. So, uh, let's see. I think I have. Yeah, here we go. The the nomad the brigands lost. Everybody died except for the one cleric. The fifth level cleric escaped. He had nine out of twenty seven hit points remaining. Uh, everyone else was killed. Uh, a few of them had tried to, most of them tried to run, a lot of them, a lot of the higher level characters tried to run and got cut down with the opportunity attacks. Uh, the fact that the nomads were mounted made a big difference because on the second round of combat, the horses got to attack and the light horses get two attacks and the medium horses get three. And as two hit dice creatures, they hit better than some of, even some of the level characters do. The the nomads ended up with uh, thirty of their regular fighting men left. Uh, Fifteen of their level fit out of out of one hundred and eleven. Uh, Fifteen out of nineteen of their leveled fighters, one of their two magic users, and one of their two clerics. So it was it was a brutal brutal combat, and while the nomads won, it probably is a Pyrrhic victory. And there's some decisions to be made in the wake of this, but this part is going on really long. And so I'll probably, well, there's no probably about it. I'm going to, to move that, cover that in the next episode. I just basically wanted to go over the battle here, talk about that. I did use AD&D for it. I know it was kind of muddled. Uh, there's a lot going on when you have, you know, almost 300 people, going at each other on a battlefield. So uh, I took some notes, but overall it was just, I thought the, I thought the brigands would do a lot better, especially with the invisibility. And then I realized that they couldn't all be invisible and still coordinate. So that helped the nomads some. And like I said, the horses made a big difference because that's essentially adding extra combatants to the nomad side. And so they they did essentially outnumber the the brigands for that reason. But this battle did illustrate to me how difficult it is for zero level men to hit level characters, even just second level characters, which a which a lot of the fighters were were second level, maybe and some third level. There were some some slightly higher levels. Uh, the leader for the brigands was, uh, I believe he was eighth level, and the for the band for the nomads it was seventh level, with their lieutenants being a couple of levels below them. So the the bandits did have, they had more leveled people. They had more spellcasters overall. Well, no, they had they had fewer spellcasters, but they had a higher leveled spellcaster. I rolled for spells, what I call semi randomly. Uh, for the clerics, I rolled their stats, and if they had, they all had ended up with bonus spells for wisdom. And for those, I picked some heal spells and some whole person spells, spells that you would definitely have. And others, I rolled to see what's appropriate to their situation. Maybe mainly survival spells. If it came up a survival spell like create food and water, they w- that would be yeah, that would be acceptable. Uh, one of the magic users for the nomads, the one that got killed, he had some good spells like web that he just didn't get to use. 
But again, as has happened with every other magic user I've rolled up so far in this campaign, nobody had a sleep spell. So that was, you know, again, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should say there's no sleep spell in this world. And if somebody comes up with one, that would be very valuable. But that's just an odd pondering. It doesn't really have anything to do with the battle. But it was it was exciting. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of time. That's actually one of the reasons why I missed a podcast a couple of weeks ago was because I was spending a lot of time running that battle. And I kind of enjoyed it. I'm a war gamer and at heart. And that's kind of the side of RPGs I tend toward is the, the war gamer side, which is interesting. As as Daniel pointed out in his call, I'm doing a lot of relating a lot of story stuff because that's what's happening. And I've, and I've enjoyed that part as well. But I do I do tend towards the 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 battle side, the 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 rolling dice and combat side of RPGs, especially you know working as a solo gamer where maybe you're not developing uh, an in-depth personality as much for the characters. But I've blathered on enough. Uh, I hope you kind of followed what happened with the battle. Uh, there was a lot to to do to deal with and a lot to relate. But essentially the the brigands, despite invisibility, despite having higher level uh, level people at their disposal, they did well at the beginning. For the first round or two, they were doing well. And then kind of after the lightning bolt, everything kind of, it turned. And then when the zombies came up and the invisible units started joining in a little more, it turned a little bit the other way, but then it turned back to the nomad's advantage. I think it's just an advantage of numbers. It's something I've seen in another podcast where they have, they're working at a domain level and they have men at arms traveling with them where if you can roll a lot of 20s, you can get a lot of hits. It's just that simple. Uh, A lot of times it ends up being a numbers game, but it's hard to hit. One more thing I did want to talk about is uh, an idiosyncrasy of AD&D First edition AD&D. When I say AD&D, I tend to mean first edition, and I'll just use the editions for the later edition. But in AD&D, people, a lot of people think about Thaco. Thaco was a second edition thing, and a difference is they have attack matrices, and it's it's mostly the same, but there is a range of armor classes in each attack matrix, 20, I mean 6, armor classes that a 20 will hit before you have to go up to a 21 to hit. And where that sits on the matrix, you know, is, is based on your level. And that's actually something that helped me make the stat cards that I was using was instead of having to list a whole list of numbers, I was just able to say this type of unit or this type of character hits this armor class with their first 20. This is the armor class, their first 20 hits. So, for example, the zero-level characters, their first 20 is at armor class 1. Now, AD&D uses descending armor class, so lower is better. But that meant that armor class 3 would take an 18 for those folks. Armor class 2 would take 19. Armor class 1 would take a 20. But so would armor class 0. So would minus 1. So would minus 2. So would minus 3. So would minus 4. It wouldn't be until you got Dharma class minus five that they would need a 21 to hit. So that's that's an interesting thing in AD&D that I've 
well, I find it interesting that 20 hits a lot of range. It's not 20 auto hits like in some later editions of the game, but a 20 hits a wider range than any other number. Any other number just hits that one specific armor class or below, obviously. But the 20 will hit, the 20 will be the top, the 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 lowest number that will hit an armor class for six different armor classes. And that's why it makes a difference the way things are listed sometimes with the adjustments you make. Some adjustments are made to hit rolls, and some adjustments are made to the armor class of the person. Cover, for example, is an adjustment to the armor class. So cover, in some ways, has a lower effect than a negative to the hit roll because if you can put a negative on a hit roll and they need a 20 to hit your armor class, then they can't hit you because they can't get a 20 if you're applying a negative to the to the hit roll. But if your armor class is just improving by two or three steps, that may still just require a 20 to hit. Anyway, that's an idiosyncrasy I wanted to mention. This has gone on over 30 minutes now. Uh, I'm getting tired of talking, and I probably have repeated myself a bunch, and I'm not sure how much sense it made. But I hope that those of you who like talking battle in RPG systems have gotten some out of this. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed kind of what this meant. I'll get more into what this means for the campaign, of course, next time. So please tune in. Uh, you'll, you're going to hear my all the contact information coming up. I have SpeakPipe. I have a Google number. I have email. And you can still go to the Spotify podcasters page, and there's a button there for my podcast where it says you can leave a message. I don't know what will happen when you hit it. Sometimes when I hit the button for other people, it tells me I need to sign in. Sometimes it doesn't. I don't know what they're doing. I'm not sure they know what they're doing. But that's the anchor apocalypse for you. So thank you for listening to all this. If you made it to the end, uh, please read in the show notes where I have links to all the people who called in and to the, the pocket lands cards, the, the, their, their website, as well as to their, their drive through page. I find them pretty interesting. They've got a whole variety of cards and, and you know, if it's something where if you need to, to generate terrain, it's worth just picking a card and it's set out in a way it's set out almost in squares. So you could, you could use it as a guide to draw it up on a, on a, on a grid, on a, on graph paper, that sort of thing, because that's what I did. <laughs> I played it out on a piece of graph paper that I drew everything up on and had some little bits of paper labeled with the different the different units and pushed them around. It was a lot of fun. I'm going to stop talking now. I promise. Goodbye. And that's it for this episode of Phantom Thoughts. I love feedback. If you would like to comment, there's lots of different ways for you to do it. First, you can go to podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash phantom thoughts and leave a voice message. Or you can send an email or attach a voice message to an email and send it to phantomthoughtspodcast at gmail.com. You can call into my Google voice line at 864-209-1441. You can send me a message on SpeakPipe at www.speakpipe.com slash phantom thoughts. You can also contact me on Discord 
I am the Pink Phantom, number 9782. So please let me hear from you. Thank you for listening and have a good day. Links to contact information and topics covered in this podcast can be found in the show notes. The opening music for this episode was Strength of the Titans, and the closing music is Late Night Radio, both by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Goodbye. <laughs>